0: Hey, hello. My name's Dan Rebelato, and you're listening to Stage Directions. Stage Directions is a podcast about theatre and criticism, performance, and research. This episode is a game of two halves. In the first, I'm going in search of right wing theatre. What is it? Where is it? Does Michael Gove like it? And if there isn't any, is it Margaret Thatcher's fault? Spoiler alert! Probably. Now, of course, as I'm sure you know, I'm a rampant socialist, my darlings, but in an admirable attempt to get out of my left-wing bubble, I'm going to discuss conservatism in the theatre with Kate Maltby, who knows whereof she speaks. And if that's not thrilling enough, which it is, in the second half, I head off to the Orange Tree Theatre to talk to its artistic director, Paul Miller, discuss the story so far, and his new season. Excited? Of course you are. You're only human. So please, make your way into the auditorium as the show is about to begin. In the summer of 1980, Margaret Thatcher's new administration was in trouble. The Tories were elected the previous year on a manifesto promising sound money and to tackle unemployment. Though in fact, inflation rose from 10% when the Conservatives took office, to 16% a couple of months later, and hitting a peak of 22% in early summer 1980. Unemployment was around a million on election day, but it too surged, breaking the 2 million barrier the following year, and 3 million 18 months after that, peaking in January 1986 at 3.4 million. There were no doubt some structural problems with British industry, but the speed of these changes was in large part a result of Thatcher's monetarist convictions, that is, that the government should not intervene in the economy except to control the money supply. So, she fervently opposed government intervention to control wages, to boost employment, or to prop up what she considered lame-duck industries. Factories, pits and shipyards closed. In spring 1983, the UK, once the workshop of the world, had become a net importer. In late 1980, Thatcher's approval rating would drop to 23%, and the following year, uprisings arose in protest against the government in Brixton, Handsworth, Chapel Town and Toxteth. In summer 1980 then, With unemployment at 2 million, inflation at 22%, there were urgent calls, not just from the political opposition but from members of her own party, to change course, to go back to the liberal consensus to which Labour and Conservative governments had subscribed since the Second World War. Internal battles between the Thatcherite diehards and the so-called wets raged through the summer and came to a head at the party conference in October 1980. How would the Prime Minister deal with the crisis in her conference address? Would she announce a U-turn? What kind of compromise was possible? 25 minutes into the speech, after a robust defence of her vision and policies, she addressed the calls for her to change course.
1: To those waiting with bated breath for that favourite media catchphrase, the U-turn, I have only one thing to say. U-turn if you want to.
0: (laughs) And she added... This famous punchline.
1: The ladies not for turning.
0: (laughs) This is almost the only thing that people remember from that speech. It was, at the time, a decisive repudiation of the wets and a defiant insistence that she would not budge from her monetarist principles. But what's less often remarked is how much the theatre is entangled in that moment. For one thing... The speech, and that joke in particular, was written for her by a playwright. Ronald Miller had a few successes in the 1940s and afterwards. Some of them were forgettable genre pieces like Murder From Memory, though others were thoughtful dramas like Zero Hour, which on the eve of D-Day debated the future of democracy, and Frida in 1946, which boldly addressed Britain's uneasy adjustment to the post-war world. I will not be He continued writing into the 1970s when he crossed paths with Margaret Thatcher and started advising on her speeches and apparently suggesting the apocryphal St Francis of Assisi words that she used when entering Downing Street.
1: Where there is discord, may we bring harmony. Where there is error, may we bring truth. Where there is doubt, may we bring faith. And where there is despair, may we bring hope.
0: But second, that famous punchline.
1: The Ladies
0: Not For Turning is a pun on the title of a hit play from the 1940s, The Ladies Not For Burning by Christopher Fry, set vaguely in the medieval period and written in exuberant and playful verse. It begins with a man, played in the premiere by John Gielgud, who arrives at the mayor's house and announces that he wants to be hanged. Want to be hanged? How very drunk you are after all! Whoever would want to be hanged? You don't make any allowance for individuality. How do you know that out there in the day or night, according to latitude, the entire world isn't wanting to be hanged? Now you, for instance, still damp from your cocoon, you're desperate to fly into any noose of the sun that'll dangle down from the sky. Life forby is the way we fatten for the michaelmas of our own particular gallows. What a wonderful thing is metaphor. Rumour has it that Thatcher was unfamiliar with the play and had to have the reference explained to her. This was not unusual. Ten years later, in 1990, it was the Tory party conference again. The Liberal Democrats had just relaunched themselves with a new logo of a bird. A speech was written for her, which included a passage that addressed this piece of rebranding.
1: Politics is a serious business, and one should not lower the tone unduly. So I will say only this of the Liberal Democrat symbol and of the party it symbolises.
0: But she had to have even this reference.
1: This is an ex-parrot.
0: Explained to her.
1: And now for something completely different.
0: Margaret <laughs> Thatcher claimed more than once to be a fan of the theatre, telling the journalist Unity Hall in the News of the World in February 1983 that, and I quote, I love going to the theatre, I love theatre but very, very rarely do I go. That was an understatement. There are very few records of Margaret Thatcher ever going to the theatre. She was invited to Phantom of the Opera in October 1986, but I can't find any record that she ever went. She did go to see the farce about her home life with Dennis Thatcher, Anyone for Dennis. Oh,
1: well, my right point is to go off this one. Yes, Dennis, I do. have you said say this before. Yes, Dennis, I have. And I've do no doubt you'll have to say it again. I'm sure I shall. You come in with a rock solid mandate to club the bloody unions back into the staircase, and who do we wheel out the moment it comes to any kind of confrontation but first Pinko Pryor, now this frightful little egg splattered ex airline pilot Norman Tebbit, who is, in my humble opinion, about as much use as a one legged man at an ass kicking party.
0: But. Her recorded theatre criticism was limited only to how good she thought the impressions were. She made infrequent visits to the National Theatre, seeing Amadeus in the early 80s and apparently being a complete buzzkill. As for the Royal Court, she did make one visit, but it was to see a lecture on industrial design in 1951, when it was not being used as a theatre at all. In truth, she is widely regarded as a bit of a philistine, and even the most devoted Thatcherites would struggle to find evidence to the contrary. When discussing literature, she only ever really enthused about Freddie Forsyth and Agatha Christie. When discussing the theatre, she only ever showed much interest in the West End in general, and Andrew Lloyd Webber in particular. Russell Harty had a show called Favourite Things, in which his guests would talk about their favourite art and music. Thatcher was a guest in July 1987 and brought with her a bizarrely kitsch porcelain statue of soldiers retaking the Falklands, leading Russell Harty to murmur in waspish innocence that he wasn't familiar with the artist. In autumn 1982, a dinner party was arranged so that Margaret Thatcher could meet some of the more right-leaning literary figures of the day, including Philip Larkin, Anthony Pohl, Stephen Spender and Tom Stoppard. By all accounts, it was not a sparkling affair. Larkin called it grisly, and most got the sense that she was not interested in anything they had to say. This indifference to art may not have been shared by many in her cabinet, but it did have an effect on policy. While she declared at a Royal Academy banquet early in her first parliament that, quote, there has to be some public spending on the arts and the heritage, she spent much of the speech sounding distinctly unenthusiastic about the prospect, and indeed her government presided over repeated real-term cuts in the Arts Council's grant. This mixture of personal and political disregard for the arts left the way clear for Labour to claim the position of its champion. This wasn't mere calculation. In the late 1980s, there seemed to be a remarkable appetite for the theatre at the highest levels of the Labour Party. So ubiquitous did the Labour leadership come in theatrical circles that in April De Angelis' 1993 play Soft Vengeance, there's a scene set at a theatrical first night and the biggest laugh is the line, Oh look, there's Neil Kinnock. Despite the reputedly genuine love of the arts felt by recent Tory cabinet members like George Osborne and Michael Gove, the reputation of the Conservatives for philistinism and a general antipathy towards the arts persists. But that 1980 conference speech has another dimension. Because Thatcher doesn't refer to any old play, she reaches back almost 35 years to the ladies not for burning. Why does she do that? Well, I don't know, but I have a theory. First, most obviously, she's playing to her audience. Video of the speech shows that, as ever, the Conservative Party faithful are fairly elderly. She's appealing to their own nostalgic memories of theatre-going. But in addition, she's appealing to a period that by reputation was the last time Conservatives might have been at home in the theatre. In the 1950s, of course, Britain saw the emergence of the angry young men, and the theatre displaying a newly confrontational attitude to society and its audiences. Oh, heavens, now I long for just a little ordinary human
2: enthusiasm. That's all, just enthusiasm. I want to hear a warm, thrilling voice cry out, Hallelujah, hallelujah, I'm alive! I've got an idea, why don't we have a little game? Let's pretend that we're human beings and that we're
0: actually alive. In recent years, I and many others have argued that the theatre that came before Osborne was more complex, subversive, sophisticated and artistically challenging than the popular image suggests. Certainly, I don't believe that a play like The Lady's Not for Burning, with its playful delight in the power of language, could really be called wholly conservative. What a wonderful thing is metaphor. But to this audience, at this moment, Thatcher's invocation of that play was an appeal to an image of a theatre without anger, without sex and violence, without obvious left-wing politics, and perhaps without subsidy. The development of the theatre between Osborne and that conference speech was increasingly towards explicit left-wing content. The angry young men of the 1950s were replaced by the fringe and alternative artists of the theatrical counterculture in the 1960s, some of whom then became the revolutionary socialist playwrights of the 1970s. The big difference between the 1940s and the 1970s, in theatrical terms, was probably state subsidy. The effects of that can be interpreted in several ways. A leftist account might suggest that subsidy allows theatre artists to experiment with artistic and political ideas in the theatre without being wholly beholden to the box office. This itself generated new kinds of relation between stage and auditorium. The performers did not have to only flatter, soothe and divert their audiences, they could also shock, confront and challenge. A right-wing argument, in fact specifically a Thatcherite argument, might talk about what they call producer capture. This is the idea that state subsidies for industry sever the link between that industry and its consumers, and as a result the industry is now being run for the benefit of its producers, not its consumers. The Thatcherites believed that this was endemic in British industry, the newspapers supposedly being run for the convenience of the print unions, Britain's dairy farms having the price of their milk propped up by the Milk Marketing Board and so on. In the theatre, they argued, subsidy was a barrier from the magnificently liberating power of the market. The idea was clearly expressed in the title of a pamphlet by the right-wing think tank the Selzden Group in 1978, the title was, A Policy for the Arts, colon, Just Cut Taxes. The idea being that, by giving the middle classes a tax cut, they would be able to support the arts themselves and obviate the need for subsidy. And if they chose not to spend their money on the arts, well, that's the market delivering its verdict. But for whatever reason, it does seem as if Thatcher's lack of enthusiasm for the subsidised theatre is mutual. From A Short, Sharp Shock to Billy Elliot, from Top Girls to Market Boy, from Anyone for Dennis to Handbagged, Margaret Thatcher was more often seen on the stage than in the audience. Except when she was in the audience by Peter Morgan.
1: Your Majesty, Prime Minister. So Merry Christmas Maggie, that may God's love The audience you... at which one receives the Queen's authority to form a government comes only once in a lifetime. When one is re-elected, one doesn't go. So that first meeting is unique. It is affecting when they go. One doesn't have time to turn around. Out goes the last, and in comes the next with barely a pause.
0: And one has often built up a relationship.
1: On well, on into the sunset. I think the 80s are going to be stupendous. Oh, cool. for me, I think I'm going up, for up, you? up. Yes,
0: I'm sure they will. And for
1: the country too. Get the economy back on its feet. And whoosh. She's a tough lady, Nadia. Give her a job. Oh, did not there? You? This country needs to stop whining. Manichism is not stupid. It takes time, determination. No more. Soap. Well, I think they're and filthy who's gonna bastards. going to dive it on. First woman prime
3: minister. Terrific. Oasis. Right, right first on. Woman if you, you must have Hitler. I suppose you'd have got if he was a
2: woman. Muzz it. They've got
1: a lockdown. I'll you your yeah. Let's
0: go, girl. Some of these representations have been unflattering, others surprisingly sympathetic most exploring her policies and impact. Of course, I shouldn't exaggerate. It's certainly not true that all theatre people are left-wing. Stoppard and Lloyd Webber I've already mentioned. There's also Julian Fellows. In the US, David Mamet recently announced his conversion to free market conservatism. In 1979, Thatcher got the votes of both Peter Hall and Harold Pinter, though both would come to regret the decision. Ten years ago, Nick Heiner, then Artistic Director of the National Theatre, announced that he was looking for a big, mischievous right-wing play. He may have been being mischievous himself, but this opened the door for a series of think pieces bemoaning the left-wing cast of British Theatre and asking, where are the right-wing plays? It is usually plays they ask for. But what is a right-wing play? Is it right-wing if the author is right-wing? Is it right-wing... Because it what expresses support for Conservative Party policies, there aren't actually many major plays on the left that specifically support Labour Party policies. Is it right-wing because it criticises the left? But the left criticises itself all the time. You might very well think that Richard Bean's England People Very Nice was the big mischievous right-wing play that it kind of wanted, but is it right-wing to ask difficult questions of the left? I think part of the argument of that play is precisely that one of the problems of the left is that it doesn't want to ask questions about some of its own policies. And are plays stable enough to be identified politically in this way? Most decent plays can be interpreted in many ways, where Rattigan might once have been thought conservative, he now strikes many people as quite progressive. I've always enjoyed the wit and daring of Stoppard's play Travesties, but when I saw it earlier this year, the West End audience around me, by its selective laughter, turned this, I think, dialectical play into a reactionary romp. David Hare criticised Beckett for his gloomy, implicitly conservative nihilism. But in Eastern Europe, his plays were read as satires on life under dictatorship and as a signal to rebel. When we talk about right-wing theatre or left-wing theatre, we're very often actually talking about a fairly narrow set of, I think, class-based or economic arguments. And I'm sure there'll be a lot of people, for example, black British theatre makers, who would question very seriously this idea that we have this extraordinarily progressive consensus in British theatre. To think about some of these issues, I talked to Kate Maltby about the supposed left-wing dominance of theatre, why that should be, why conservatives should value the arts, and the political allegiances of ambiguity. So, I'm here at the National Theatre with Kate Maltby, who is a theatre critic for The Times, Wall Street Journal and other places. She's also an academic, writing a PhD on Elizabeth I's scholarly life and the idea of a scholar queen. But she is also possibly unusual in that she is a conservative. Formerly involved with the liberal conservative think tank Bright Blue, she's discussed contemporary politics in person and print on such forums as The Spectator, The Guardian, and on Woman's Hour and Question Time. Uh, Welcome, Kate.
3: Hello. Thank you for having me.
0: So, Kate, you seem like a nice person, and yet you're a Conservative. Where did it all go wrong?
3: Well, it all went wrong a very long time ago, I'm afraid. I think I have been getting less and less right-wing as I grow older, uh, which, for most people who know me, will probably just scare you with the thought of me aged 11. But I, I actually am not sure I'd call myself Conservative. I'm a classical liberal... I used to call myself a libertarian, and I I still would, except that increasingly the word libertarian conjures up images of um, white teenage boys in Texas in their mother's basements (laughs) talking about how much they love their guns and complaining about affirmative action. So uh, I think quite clearly I wouldn't want to be associated with such a label. Um, But I mean, I'm... I really am saddened that there is... There is obviously a sort of assumption, particularly in the world we live in and in the arts world, that if you're skeptical of big government and you fundamentally think that the private sector manages things better, creates wealth, creates prosperity, better than government, um, you are... that you only want the worst for people, that you are selfish and horrible and nasty. It's very sweet of you to say I'm nice (laughs) and sweet and lovely. But by the standards of all my friends in the arts, I'm to the right of Attila the Hun. And by the standards of all my friends in the Conservative Party, I am, and I quote a Tory MP just the other week, a lefty pinko. So I just really can't get along with anyone, can I, Dan?
0: Do you think it's true that theatre is dominated by the liberal left?
3: Of course it is. If anything, I would say not even the liberal left, but increasingly the hard left. I mean, one of the... Theatre's often been ahead of progressive movements, which is good in many ways, but one of the reasons you could... One of the ways you could see the Corbyn surge coming was you could see it coming in theatre, and you could see the way in which uh, the... I would call it the hard left. Uh, some of your listeners might dispute that label, but the, the, the movement... Of the new Labour leadership was inspiring people, was getting people talking, and was creating plays and dramas that increasingly anti-capitalism had become a default position, um, where I found that there are a lot of plays in London where, as an audience member, if you don't share those core principles before you even enter the theatre, um, you're not going to be engaged and you're not really going to be able to... One of the things that saddens me about theatre, but also about a lot of our political discourse, is that we've given up trying to persuade people. Mm. And for me, one of the darker sides of that left-wing surge in, in theatre currently, regardless of what your personal politics are, and regardless of my personal politics, I can see how inspiring and exciting a lot of it is, mm. but the flip side is that a lot of it seems to have given up at really attempting to persuade people whose fundamental starting points are not your own. Mm -hmm. So I see plays every week which are very, very good at asking questions of capitalism. Uh, They ask the hard questions, they ask questions to which those of us, and I count myself as one of them, who still think on balance that capitalism has lifted people out of poverty, that it's the best system that we've tried, and they're all, t- they're all flawed. Those are all questions that we have to answer and that it's right and proper that we go and see plays in which we're forced to face up to them. And as an audience member, I wouldn't go to the theatre if I didn't think I was going to be challenged. What I'm not so sure is that theater is, the theatre world, in Britain at least, is nearly as good at asking the hard questions about the left mm. and examining the core principles and the core assumptions uh, that, as a community of artists, it tends to share. Some of that, of course, is about is, is more true of the subsidized sector than the commercial sector, um, partly because all public sectors tend to all public sector workers everywhere, and the subsidized arts are the public sector, uh, tend to a kind of overinflated view of the possibilities of government, or I, I would claim so anyway, that you know, an overdependence on bureaucracies.
0: I guess one of the issues is the question of definition because when we talk about where the right wing plays or whatever that um, question is, what does right wing mean? Because it could mean conservative with a small c, it could mean conservative with a big C, it might mean reactionary, it might be bourgeois, it might be Thatcherite, it might be a free marketeer, it might be a Brexiteer. Um, It it could be a huge range of different things. So uh, when people say, where are the right-wing plays, how do you hear that? What do you think they're looking for?
3: To be honest, I think people are asking the wrong question. I think when they say, where are the right-wing plays, they are looking for some kind of band-aid or, uh, frankly, to use a very right-wing phrase, a diversity tick box. You know, People want to feel better about... Because there's there's also a huge diversity of forms of of lefts, of forms of leftism in British theatre, which is great. There's a conversation about what it means to be on the left that's thriving and that's actually often very, very opposed, just as there is in the Labour Party and in the broader progressive movement and all of those things. So if you're looking for a right-wing playwright, you're already asking the wrong question. You talked earlier about Nick Heitner, who famously said he was looking for a big, mischievous right-wing play that was going to shake up the National Theatre, or at least prove its commitment to political diversity. Mm. And one of the names that came up a lot in res- in, in the conversation that he initiated was Richard Bean. Yeah. And uh, one, of, one of Bean's great plays is The Heretic, which of course is partly about climate change. It's really about what happens when anyone questions any orthodoxy. So Richard Bean has been held up as part of our solution to the you know, the desperate need for a right-wing playwright to at least just make ourselves feel a bit, more, a bit better in the theatre world, that we have political diversity. But I think if you, if you ask Richard Bean himself, he wouldn't think of himself as a right-wing playwright. No. But in our search for the mythical right-wing playwright, you know, like the, the white whale, we've imposed this label on a few people who might fit the bill when in fact what they do is is not identify as right-wing or promote conservatism. I don't think think Richard Bean has ever promoted an ideology in any of his plays, but what he's done is he's asked hard questions of the left. Um, And also, I think what Richard's great at is he asks why people on the other side, in the case of The Heretic, why people who question climate change believe what they believe. I find that very, very difficult to find in theatre. A playwright who goes and asks why the right believes what it believes. And
0: I guess with him, what's so interesting is that, given that clearly a lot of what Richard Bean's plays are about is the question of, of why there are these orthodoxies that don't get questioned on the left. Yes. And the fact that because he... Actually asks questions of the left he's then thought of as a right wing playwright only confirms his sense of 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 how stifling the orthodoxies of the left can be
3: i I completely agree I mean I feel quite like that in terms of my own politics that I, I i'm right about theater obviously I work in politics as well but I write, I write about theater i 'm been a graduate student for far too long at UCL Uh, my friends and I mean just genuine generally my close friends in social circle are very much of the left and of the arts world and I am automatically seen as the crazy conservative sorry that sounds like some kind of special pleading I don't mind being considered crazy I'm well
0: It's the conservative. It's the
3: conservative that (laughs) sticks. I mean, that is an insult. One of the areas in which I think there is a real um, herd mentality in theatre is Israel. I do not... I really don't think I've ever seen a play, and I know there have been plays that have tried, but a play in London, a play play in the United Kingdom, to be less uh, metropolitan in my assumptions, that has really shown any understanding of why someone born in Israel might want to defend Israel. Or frankly, you know, a play that understands the existence of the state of Israel, full stop. I was pretty appalled by Holy Warriors um, at the Globe, which loads of people, lots of my theater friends absolutely adored, but was supposed to be this sort of panoramic vision of the Middle East and um, interfaith relations in the Middle East over a thousand years. And there were no Jews depicted as living in Israel mm. until um, until the 20th century, except for a comment by I think Saladin talking about how well he treated the Jews because he was, of course a hero as well, you know white Christians were for evil and so forth and it was i mean there were many great things about that play i actually I very much liked David Eldridge in a lot of ways, I mean as a person as well as as a playwright. Uh, James is fantastic. There are really good people and good artists involved. But it felt like there were a group of people there trying to do give a very broad vision and yet starting from not having asked basic questions about why people view the history of that region in a different way from themselves.
0: Obviously, I have no brief to defend uh, David Aldrich <laughs> or that play. I wondered if that was because... Uh, I mean, you say it was a panoramic history of the Middle East over, over a, a millennium, but, I mean, it was, its focus was on the Crusades, and just because the axis there was kind of the West and the, the Islamic world, was that not what produced that particular kind of focus? Or do you think the exclusion of Jews from that story was more considered and deliberate?
3: I don't think any of these things are considered and deliberate. I think one of the things that we're talking about in this conversation is why people have the unquestioned assumptions, or that they do, or um, have make the omissions that they why why we all and I do this myself all of the time. Why we approach things um, without re, without really realizing that we're excluding things from our vision at all. We all do this, but even the selection of the Crusades and the meddling of the West in the Islamic world, well, specifically in the Middle East and not in the Islamic world, which is of course much broader and yeah. Yeah. Um, much richer, is is an example of that perspective. Uh, if you do a play, frankly, in if you do a play in the United Kingdom about the West's relationship with anywhere else, it's going to be about the West meddling and screwing things up. <laughs> now, I. N- Certainly, uh, the West has meddled and screwed things up, and certainly the British Empire has done terrible things, and I'm, again, I'm not the type of you know, extreme cultural conservative who's going to walk bring in back and the say- Raj. Yes, exactly, bring back the Raj. Um, but it's interesting that those are the only things we talk about, um, and is the only way we approach the Middle East. Part of me would say that if you want to talk about the Crusades in the Middle East, you can also look at how they impacted the lives of the Middle East's Jews. Uh, right. quite bad I mean if you want to sure. criticise the Crusaders there are lots of other ways to criticise them they were really not great
0: um, so let me I think it would be really interesting to try and think a little bit about what the explanation might be for this dominance of, of left wing people and positions in the theatre so the, the let's say the self flattering left wing explanations that I could think of would boil down to a kind of nice people do nice things so in other words the theatre is a sort of place where you will do well creatively if you are empathetic, if you work very well with other people, that you have kind of um, you have in, an interest in in beautiful things for their own sake, and and people say well those are sort of broadly altruistic, somewhat more left wing, liberal positions, and therefore there is a sort of an affinity between the left. And the theatre. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, I've said something that's very oversimplified, but I, I wondered if we could just quickly talk about whether we think there's any truth in that, any value in that as an explanation.
3: So, I do think theatre is fundamentally liberal. Again, huge simplification, and of course, theatre has been used very much in the construction of fascist art. I'm not sure I would call that theatre, I would call it performance, I would call it collective almost religious ritual there are ways in which performances have been made have been created to arouse fascist feeling and so forth but fundamentally the theatre of the type that we're talking about the type that we love uh, and yes I'm, I'm going to be I believe in talking about merit and think we're using words like good so I'm gonna say good theatre is fundamentally liberal um, I I was um, Leading a workshop for teenagers recently on um, arts criticism and we had a Q&A session and one of them asked me a very standard question, I get it asked a lot, it's a good question because you're a conservative do you feel that um, that impacts the way you write about theatre or your criticism or your response to theatre and it's a good question and a fair one and the answer is yes of course in a bit in that I always try to celebrate the execution, the craft, like the technical excellence of anything I see, and then I try to respond also to its, to what it is as a statement, as, an, as a political act. As a, and so obviously when I, when I disagree with the message that the theatre is trying to inculcate in me, I will say that, but I also hope I can say that fairly and explain why other people might disagree. However, I also responded to the young man asking the question by saying, I think if I was really a conservative, I would be a bad critic. In the same way that I don't connect with Marxist theatre criticism. I was going to say I don't like it, and then I thought that would be unfair. <laughs> I'm going to temper that. but like, To me, criticism that is based in itself on orthodoxies is limiting. Let me
0: um, rehearse uh, perhaps a slightly more refined version of the the, the the flattering left-wing explanation, which I suppose would be that... Certainly in Britain, for the last 35 years, the, the Conservative the Conservative Party has been somewhat dominated by that kind of Thatcherite version of what, what it means to be a conservative, rather than, let's say, an older One Nation form of conservatism or a kind of liberal form of conservatism. Um, and to put it very, very crudely, there is a sort of rather hard-line... Notion wrapped up in there, which is that the the value of most things is given by their kind of economic performance, or that you can you find out how good something is by seeing whether people are prepared to pay for it and how much they're prepared to pay for it. In that sense, you open everything up to the market to see how it works. Now, I'm not saying that's necessarily a totally fair characterization of. Oh,
3: but it's I think it is fair, here. frankly. Okay. <laughs> and uh, I'm not going to question you on that. After the uh, appalling mess of the last election, the people who are who look like they're taking charge in the Conservative Party absolutely have that very materialistic view of the world. And I I think it's a real embarrassment uh, for any of us who are seen as conservative in the arts world that so many people in the Conservative Party have spent their time attacking arts funding, uh, attacking the attacking artists as some kind of spectator sport, using the word lovey, which is just unnecessarily dismissive and offensive. Yeah. Um, so I get that. And I mean, if you... Just to be defensive for a minute, if you look at what I've written, I've, I've spent a lot of time in conservative-leaning publications writing pieces explaining why conservatives should support funding for the arts, right. for example. The idea that we should minimise the state so much that we shouldn't uh, celebrate culture right. is not very conservative. and And actually... It really gets me as someone who has moments of being a cultural conservative that um, the Conservative Party often isn't prepared to fight for culture. Right? They aren't prepared to fund it, they aren't prepared to celebrate it and then they go off and they talk endlessly about Shakespeare and they talk about British values and they don't really want to fund a national theatre. I mean, what is the culture of Britain that they want to celebrate? We, You and I have talked and I think everyone is now talking about the realignment of politics in which uh, there's a reaction against globalisation which values uh, the community, the physical space uh, even traditional values horrible as that phrase is which can be reinvented in modern times so um, we were even talking about the role of atheist churches for example of spaces for communities to come together in a way that the church has provided in the past where you don't actually have to be religious we are finding new ways to do old things and to find the things about them that we like that is a place where cultural conservatives and the left are coming together. In many ways, I find it very threatening because I am one of those neoliberal globalist types uh, who believes in open borders and free markets and uh, accepts that you get a certain homogeneity as a result of that. But there has always been a strand of conservatism, and you get it from arch-conservative figures in you know the 17th and 18th century, like Joseph de Maistre, you get it in Schump- Schumpeter. You get it in Oakeshott, you know, serious conservative philosophers who have said the conservative should be the one who values culture rather than material benefit. And if you look at um, conservative rejections of Marxist economics, they always have made the point that the Marxist sees everything purely through an economic nexus. So I find it astonishing that a tradition of which in some ways I find myself part looks at the theatre and rejects that power that artistic power that communal power that sense of community that comes from theatre as something which could actually be very conservative right
0: that's very interesting so let me try a different explanation which i think i would i would associate with a kind of a right wing explanation classic 1970s early Thatcherite which is the notion of producer capture theatre might be considered to be a sort of a, a bit of an example of that because of subsidy so subsidy is something which on some level, not completely at all in Britain, but on some level immunises the theatre a little bit from the force of market choice. So you can, you can, still, you can fail and still stay open as a theatre uh, up, up to a certain point. That might be a right-wing explanation for why the theatre is so left-wing. Mm-hmm. What do you think of that?
3: One of the counters that I always make to conservative critics when we're talking about arts funding is that the subsidised theatre and the commercial theatre are actually deeply codependent. When you you subsidise theatre in Britain, you are actually investing in the commercial arts and the creative industries more broadly, uh, which is a defence I make in favour of arts funding. I'm saying, actually, you get you you do get this indirect economic growth if that's the only thing you're interested in. You know, Sonia Friedman would not have been able to put on Harry Potter in Britain, in London, with that quality of uh, brilliant cast, brilliant Production. creatives. Yeah. However commercial it was, I mean, that's the most commercial you can that's imagine really a show. Crazy. But if those people hadn't trained at the Bush and the Donmar and gone to drama schools yeah. that... Yeah. If John Tiffany... And Jack hadn't trained at the Royal Court got that experience in the National Theatre of Scotland Black Watch yeah. I mean those were all things we invested in uh, as, a, as a nation and we got bums on seats at Harry Potter out of it <laughs> you might not think that's, the, that's uh, the best way of thinking about art but um, it does bring in tax revenue mm-hmm.
0: there's also I think there's a question of interpretation because um, uh, it's we might think that the theatre is very left wing or these plays are very left wing but I think there is always an activity that an audience can go through or a critic or a scholar or whatever it is of reinterpreting and re-understanding what is actually going on in the theatre and I, and I thought about um, uh, an interview I, I always remember this uh, from a long time ago an interview from 1983 with Nigel Lawson uh, and Nigel Lawson, who, um, who said in this interview um, that Shakespeare was a Tory, without any doubt. I think that in Coriolanus, I'm quoting here, the Tory virtues are the Roman virtues as mediated through Shakespeare, um, and it's written from a Tory point of view. Now, it seems to me that, um, certainly in the academic circles I'm aware of, that's, that's usually um, quoted to scorn the mental abilities of Nigel Lawson. Sure. But, of course, there, are, there is a debate about almost any play, that you can think of it, you can reinterpret it, you can rework it in your critical analysis. So, again, how do we decide finally what the politics of a piece of theatre are?
3: I have always thought that great literature and great drama, great theatre, should be ambiguous. Of course, I know that that is traditionally in itself a very right-wing position. The argument that uh, a piece of work should be completely free to be interpreted by the reader or by the audience and and should be free in particular from any kind of very limiting or um, all-encompassing final correct reading, the idea of a correct reading is something that right-wing critics have always opposed, from, you know, Empson and some types of ambiguity onwards, probably before that. Ambiguity has been held up as the highest good in uh, in literary arts by right-wingers. Now, for most of us, of course, that's really a way of... um, wrestling whatever our favourite work of art is from the left. I can't uh, count the number of academic conferences I've been to or panels about Shakespeare where someone has stood up and said exactly the opposite of Nigel Wilson which is... um, Shakespeare was a leftist. Shakespeare was a progressive, Shakespeare was a Catholic, Shakespeare was uh, criticizing the Elizabethan state, Shakespeare was an anti-capitalist uh, before his time. Left- left-wingers claim that Shakespeare was one of them and conservatives say no he's for everyone which is really a way of saying let us have some of him too and that extends to all great literature and all great theatre. So uh, Nigel Lawson in this example is picking a, uh, picking a very difficult fight I think to claim him as exclusively for himself.
0: I'm really interested uh, by the way you're characterising left-wing criticism, because I think of ambiguity as not at all being something to do with right-wing criticism. I think of that as being, over the last 50 years, completely the sphere in which radical oppositional criticism would be. If you think of deconstruction, um, if you think of cultural materialism, with its emphasis on contradictions and fault lines and gaps and lacunae and so on um, and uh, you know Adorno thinking of the you know the kind of the negative dialectic and so on so I'm really interested in this idea I wonder if you have a slightly you have a bit of a caricature which is a sort of I don't know a kind of Lukácsian social realist 1930s version of Marxist criticism. Quite possibly
3: I mean I'm, I haven't really left the 17th century so 1930s <laughs> is, is I think we're talking about different criticism that asks different questions so you started this section of the discussion by talking about Nigel Lawson talking about Shakespeare and so I think I'm also very much talking about Shakespeare and the way in which we talk about Shakespeare is of course very much filtered through the lens of authorship studies and our obsession with the idea of the author the idea of the playwright who he was so I think when we talk about Ambiguity and we talk about Shakespeare we're still very much trying to there's a struggle going on between people like him and who are claiming him for the left and then other people who are creating this slightly mythic unknowable universalist but certainly politically um, detached again loaded as that is figure. So when and so when I think when you talk about things like dia- dialectic and um, Points of contradiction and particularly deconstructionism. We're talking more about discussions of form and discussions of than we are about discussions of authorship, our relationship with the author. Maybe again, I'm oversimplifying here.
0: But presumably, you would think. Well, would you think that form has its own politics? I mean, of
3: course, form has its own politics. I'm just trying to say that I think they are. to explain uh, that I'm not dismissing that. I'm merely just not looking at the, the lens of, kind of Shakespeare's politics. And I, I do think that there is a, um, I, that form is the current real battle in British theatre. And uh, you know, the move to reject narrative form, in particular, is an important one to be engaged with. And you know, British theatre is still so much about narrative. Mm. About traditional narratives. Yeah,
0: traditional narratives.
3: Traditional narratives. Narrative. One of the things we've talked about throughout this conversation is whether theatre is engaging with conservatives, mm-hmm. conservative audiences, as well as conservative writers. And I think uh, throughout the conversation, we've, we've focused on the search for a playwright, because that's where Nick Heitner started, in a way that focuses our conversation on authors.
1: Mm. So
3: you, you asked earlier if an audience can change the politics of a piece, which of course it can. Uh, theatre is something very fluid it's a collective experience uh, what you at some point the author has to let go at some point the director has to let go it's and that's the hardest thing I think for artists and for makers of theatre is is that you're giving it to other people you're letting them more, it about at different levels whatever your role is every single it's so collective and it's collective with the audience and with the world no one no one ever owns a piece of theatre So that's another way in which I think this search for the right-wing playwright is a a complete wild goose chase. We're not looking for a right-wing playwright. We're looking for theatrical experiences that engage with conservative ideas. But I would encourage theater makers to do more, to think about theater as an act of persuasion. You asked just now if theater can change people's politics. I really believe that it has to, in the same way that theatre has to change all of us, and it has to change everything about us.
0: Kate Morby, thank you very much. I was struck, through all of that conversation, by the ways that themes I generally consider part of the left's view of the theatre – collectivity and challenge, commonality and transformation – were part of the way Kate Morby sees the theatre. This might mean that I am wrong about what I think my politics are. It might mean that Kate is. Or it might suggest that the realignment that Kate Morby suggested might be happening in the political realm might also be something we start to see in theatre too. Now, the cynical among you might think that in turning to the Orange Tree Theatre, the discussion of right-wing theatre simply continues. The London borough of Richmond-on-Thames has been for many years an unfairly easy laugh for any comedian who wants to evoke somewhere exclusively inhabited by wealthy conservative pensioners. In the past, the orange tree has sometimes had the reputation, equally unfairly, of pandering to that audience. But since Paul Miller took over as artistic director three years ago, that reputation has changed. Alongside rediscoveries of plays by Mustafa Matura, Claire McIntyre, Doris Lessing and Carol Churchill, among others, Miller has programmed some of the most startling and challenging plays of the decade by the likes of Brad Birch, Ali McDowell, Alice Birch, Roland Schimmelpfennig and Brandon Jacobs Jenkins. And all of this without an Arts Council grant. I met Paul in his office in the theatre to look back at his work so far and to look forward to his new season. So, I'm uh, sitting in what the UK Theatre Awards call London's most welcoming theatre, and I'm talking to its artistic director, uh, Paul Miller. I was thinking about five years ago, I became head of department in in the university where I teach, and suddenly realised that the 20 years of experience I had as an academic, um, all of those skills, were now useless, and I had to learn completely new skills about budgeting and timetabling and personnel management and things like that. Um, What's it like going from being a director to being an artistic director and running a (laughs) theatre? Well, first of all, I should say welcome, since we are the
2: most welcoming theatre in London. Um, Of course, there is here an amazing team, Um, quite a number of whom were in place when I arrived and are still here, which I'm very pleased about. But of course, soon after I arrived, Sarah Nicholson joined as the executive director. So, you know, that's, that's an amazing person to work with and as, you know, to then have a, a team that we all work with is how everything gets done, really. So uh, that's kind of very, like, that's the most important thing to say. But there is still this big uh, jump because I, th- I guess it's the same thing as when I first wanted to be a director because I wanted to go into the theatre... And I sort of intuited that directing was not about power, but it was the job that was in touch with every aspect of the theatre. Um, and so that's really why I wanted to do it. And in a way, then it's a, it's a sort of natural progression, but still a leap. to being an artistic director, you are then even more in in touch with every working element of how a play gets on. And so that's, that's the enjoyable part of it. It's also completely the scariest part of it because you feel ultimately responsible for for everything. If something goes well, you feel pleased for the people that did that.
0: <laughs> if something goes badly, you feel personally, individually responsible. The Orange Tree is famously a theatre in the round, a permanent theatre in the round. What's this theatre taught you? I wanted to come here because of the space, because
2: I liked it's sculptural possibilities. The fact that you were dealing with the figure of the human being is literally at the centre of the, the drama. So that aspect of the theatre, which is that it is profoundly a figurative art, if you're going to be in the round, that that, that pushes it to its complete extreme. I, I think that as I've learned to play with the space and, and as I've watched others play in that space, I think what I've learned more and more is that this sounds a bit glib, but it is the it is the oldest form of theatre. Gather round, and we'll tell you a story. In a clearing in a forest, thousands of years ago, they didn't say, "Okay, you all go and sit over there in the dark, and I'll stand here and tell you a story." No, no, gather round, and we'll tell you a story. So that sort of, um, if you like, almost campfire quality to it is why that space can be very, uh, sort of, potent experience to see a play in, and. I think you could say that there's two types of potency to that space. Either you're in a there's a play on that's as it were in front of you. It's happening in somebody's room, and it's a naturalistic play where the audience is as it were ignored, but is this amazingly intimate voyeur into somebody else's life. Or, of course, there are experiences where suddenly it is one room that you're all in. And you're all part of it mm. and that can be uh, very very powerful intoxicating certain you know th- when things are funny suddenly there's a room full of people all together finding it funny if something's shocking uh, suddenly you've got a room full of people who are visibly shocked and of course what's interesting is when you've got you know in, a, in any drama things to which different people react differently will then spread out around you and in front of you, you've got a room full of people having very different reactions that you can see. And so that adds a kind of electricity to proceedings sometimes.
0: That's really interesting, because I think looking back on the three years and the shows I've seen here, one of the things that is most distinctive is actually a changed sort of mode of address in that shows like a Pomona or an Octoroon. I certainly had experiences at the Orange Tree that I'd never had before, of being of being challenged of in Pomona, of being scared. Is that something that you very consciously sought to produce at the Orange Tree because of that theatre-in-the-round experience, or is that something you've discovered in the course of your work here? I think it's something I've discovered. So, for instance, the
2: first production I did here was a D.H. Lawrence play, The Widowing of Mrs. Holroyd, which, you know, uh, Lawrence was quite purposefully trying to um, invent, reinvent intense naturalism for the theatre. And so that was a play where, um, of, if you like, extreme goings-on in small rooms to which the audience was this sort of, you know, enthralled voyeurs, really. And I suppose... One of the reasons maybe why that was the first play I did is because that was my first natural instinct about how to use that space. I think if you've observed a shift, it may be a little bit in me personally that I am now more than I used to be, um, perhaps interested in that more
0: interactive
2: way of using the space. Mm.
0: You took over in 2014 at pretty much exactly the point that the Arts Council withdrew their grant from the theatre that must have affected programming in some way but how? (laughs) Um,
2: We we didn't fall off a sort of um, cliff edge financially Um, we had some reserves in the bank there was some ongoing uh, support for for projects from the Arts Council Mm -hmm fantastic support from Richmond Council, which is unusual and for, you know for which we're hugely grateful and this is and in a way this trumps everything. What was unusual about this theater as I arrived was that it had a substantial committed audience or collection of audiences that were prepared to come to quite a range of things already and that made it very un- unusual. Uh, now, I was aware that that collection of audiences needed diversifying, but it was um, I was not walking into a theatre whose audience needed building up. It's why we felt confident that we could programme, we could continue to programme progressively, seriously, and in some cases, you know, with quite challenging things. There were enough other components pieces to the sort of finances to mean that we could try to do what we are continuing to do which is to continue to be a producing theatre of a small to medium scale but without the regular subsidy from the national pot
0: which is a admirably upbeat assessment of what it's like to lose an Arts Council grant but there must be things that are more difficult to do or your break-even point in terms of audience numbers must have changed, there must be downsides. I mean, what are the the real challenges? It is true that it's
2: more of a high-wire act. If we did a production that really somehow tanked, uh, you know, artistically it was a bad choice, the press pointed this out, the public knew it we all knew it and the theatre somehow emptied that would have a massively destabilising effect on our finances if that happened twice in a financial year that would have potentially a hugely dis- distorting effect on our work right. so far we haven't had that I've I mean I've learned from watching you know not having run a theatre before of course I directed <laughs> in the theatres and um I learned particularly from watching, I suppose, two artistic directors that I worked with who I thought were amazing, actually, Um, Daniel Levins at Sheffield and Nick Heitner at the National Theatre, where I worked with in both of those places. And I think something that Nick discovered, actually, quickly, almost seemed to discover it immediately at the National, was that in the 21st century it actually wasn't possible any longer to set out to program conservatively. You could put on what would be thought to be uh, like a safe bet, and it would and it would bomb. You'd put on something that looked ludicrously reckless, and it would go through the roof. And I think I sensed, because I was there in the early part of his um, tenure, I sensed him getting the wind in his sails from when he had that realization. And I and I and I. Thought, felt that here, that actually moving forward was the only way for us. That if you decide, if you took a conscious decision to go,
0: what will they like?
2: You, it, It's the road to doom, actually.
0: So how do you plan a season? And I ask this because I've never done it. You presumably can't just throw together six or seven favourite plays. You've got to balance personnel, you've got to balance budgets, you've got to make the season kind of cohere. How do you go about this game of three-dimensional chess? Three-dimensional chess, w- which is also a context
2: sport. That's what nobody quite understands, that there's different... As you rightly say, far too many people who should know better think that in any theatre, the artistic director particularly, is sort of loftily sitting with a huge chart and just moving pieces around and painting a picture and then once they've painted the picture to their satisfaction it's put into a brochure but it's it's completely not like that at all Um, you've got to be having all sorts of conversations with people who want or don't want to do certain projects playwrights who may or may not want their play on directors who may or may not want to direct those plays there are things that one is taking into account now Uh, because of the urgency of thinking about diversity and about um, gender balance, which is hugely important. We have this set of things that that seem to interact well, which is to do new work by emerging artists, emerging writers, mostly directed by their contemporaries, rediscoveries of things uh, that have mostly been directed by me so far, and then what I'm calling these contemporary revivals... So those things come into play, um, but timing is so much of it. When people are free, you know, it's a, it's an infinitely more complex um, thing. And you know, I can be thinking about certainly what might be happening in autumn next year, but equally there are decisions that will suddenly get overturned and have to be rethought about what's happening in March.
0: So let me ask you about the, the, the various shows in, in the forthcoming season. So you start with. The March on Russia, which is a, yeah. a late David Story play yeah. by, by the late David Story. I'll probably cut for that. <laughs> <laughs> um, it was first performed at the National in nineteen eighty nine, and it's um it's a sort of family reunion play. It's it's a kind of return to one of his first plays, isn't it, in, in celebration. What drew you to this Particular play because it's not one of David Story's more famous plays, I suppose. And, and how did the collaboration come about?
2: Well, David Story is, as I think we all know, you know, this sort of very, very distinctive and important post war dramatic voice. And um, I always loved his plays, I saw the original production of this play. Um, that Lindsay Anderson directed, who is his long-time collaborator, and yes, indeed, the play draws the two elderly, the, the elderly couple whose wedding anniversary it is, are drawn from the earlier play in celebration. Their children are mysteriously completely different um, from the earlier play, uh, and fortunately have they they used to have three sons and um, now fantastically have uh, two daughters. Um, so, and I yeah remembered this as having a special atmosphere. This play and. Certainly I was aware that not many people knew about the play, um, whereas there have been revivals of in Celebration, for instance, and Home is much revived. But I was also aware that just recently, David Storey, as a writer, had begun to slip away from people's consciousness, and that sort of troubled me a bit. And so I thought it was time, probably, to have a look at one of his plays, and time, perhaps, to have a look at this play, which I remembered because it deals with the fracturing of labour heartlands in the 80s and things that, you know, continue to reverberate now. The collaboration with Up in Arms came about because we'd co-produced with them um, the production of German Scaries, the Robert Holland play, which Alice Hamilton had directed so brilliantly. And um, I'm sure they won't mind me uh, slightly caricaturing our meeting, but, you know... As I had been considering the march on Russia, but slightly, it had sort of stayed at a far reach of my desk because I was thinking, well, I wonder if that's just me that likes that play. I don't know. In come Barney Norris and Alice Hamilton, uh, who are, are they thirty? I don't know. Saying, there's this amazing play by David Storey. You won't have heard of it. We we want to do it. So, when a when somebody of a different generation to me comes with that kind of enthusiasm for something that already coincides with something that I like, that kind of unlocks it for me.
0: You mentioned Alice Hamilton and Chelsea Walker. Uh, of course one of the things I do think again is very distinctive about your tenure here at The Orange Tree is the way you've brought in that generation of some of the most exciting directors in Britain, Ella McDougall, David McAtali, Ned Bennett, Derek Bond, Mel Hilliard, Rania Jameli Charlotte Gwimmer and more, who are being programmed alongside, am I allowed to say veterans like yourself? Old Hacks. <laughs> Old Hacks like yourself or, or veterans like Ramin Gray and so on. Um, and you, you've you mentioned this already, there's something about pairing plays with, playwrights with their contemporaries as directors. But but is there, is there something else there? I mean, is it partly about shaking up the, Building is it about shaking up your practice? Uh, is it just about admiring their their work?
2: Um, or all of the above? Um, uh, you know, I I have admired all of their their work hugely. I think that I was aware of a couple of things when I started, which was that aesthetically, artistically, me as a director,
1: you know, I am now fifty.
2: My my practice, my aesthetics, are almost inevitably somewhat conservative. Mm-hmm. And so I was aware that I was not going to be the the, the bleeding edge of uh, British theatre, and that we needed new life in the place, and that I was probably going to be the person that was on the more conservative end of things, perhaps. But more practically, I was also acutely aware of because of what of my sort of story of the, my career that there were the, the British at the moment, or recently then. There's a lot more ways in to the theatre than there used to be now. There are a lot more opportunities for very young playwrights and very young directors and artists of all kinds to get in. There's schemes, there's smaller theatres, there's opportunities, there's MAs. There's all sorts of ways in. And then you get to your late 20s, if we can talk about it in age terms, and there's suddenly a bottleneck, a jam, because there seems to be this jump that needs to be made from smaller theatres of which there are many to quote unquote big theatres and I felt that it was very difficult for people to hit about 30 and like well what do I do I've done several really good things on the fringe which people seem to like and have talked about and then what the next stop to the Olivier uh how do I a how do I do that and b how do I earn a living in the meantime you know and it seemed to me the Orange Tree, uh, we had a bit of a responsibility because we're not a small theatre. We're you know, 180 seats. It's a it's a healthy-sized theatre, actually. So I thought it presented an opportunity for some people to work on a slightly bigger canvas than, as I say, the the very small, um, committed new writing theatres, for instance. So that was that was the idea behind that, really.
0: Every brilliant thing, Duncan McMillan's show with johnny donahue this show has been around for at least four years in fact i remember it when it started as a facebook post but it's played almost everywhere it's it's been it's a huge hit it's been new york melbourne south carolina wellington huge national tour virtually the only place it hasn't had a proper run is london why did you want this play and how did you get it
2: (laughs) Well, I think you've just rather brilliantly described why I might want the play. um, You're absolutely right, and it played a whole run in New York. and It kind of goes back a little bit to the use of the space that we talked about. I perhaps came late to it in the sense that I only saw it in Edinburgh, what was that, two years ago now. And I thought it was just like nothing I'd ever... When I say... You can't really say seen about Mm. it. Nothing I'd ever experienced. It's an experience, you know. And I thought this was absolutely marvellous, and the way he was, you know, not just that the audience were not were a fundamental part of the of the dynamic of the of the event. And I thought, God, this would be amazing at the Orange Tree, and um, and it made me laugh, and it made me cry, and I just thought this is fantastic. And then it it dawned on me that yes, it has been much talked about, and thousands of people have seen it in Edinburgh or in New York. Or wherever else. But as you say, only tiny handfuls of dates on, in London. Also, Johnny Donoghue n- knew the Orange Tree space because he'd been here with his double act, Johnny and the Baptists. Yes. And he was excited about the idea of doing the show here in our space. And the fact that it hadn't had uh, this London run. So I just thought, I don't care that we haven't originated this. I want to see it again.
1: Yeah.
2: <laughs> I want everybody I know to see it. So it so happens that uh, we've got a theatre we can put it on in. And so uh, that's how we went to, to Payne's Plough and, of course, Pentabus, who also originally co-produced it with them. And fortunately, Johnny was free, and, and, and here we are. And I think it's going to be a, an amazing event. Every brilliant thing is
0: about a son trying to forestall the death of a parent. Poison, by lot Vecamance, is about parents trying to deal with the death of a child. Neat link there. Do you like the way I did that? (laughs) Wonderful
2: segue.
0: Now, I've not seen this play, I've not read this play, but tell me about this play and why you wanted to direct it.
2: Yes, Uh, it does describe a couple whose uh, relationship uh, was completely splintered and broken by the effect of the death of their young child in an accident and the play shows them meeting up some years later at the cemetery where he's buried. It just seemed to me, again, going I suppose going back to the space, it's very delicately written, actually. It just doesn't set out to wring your withers. It is a very emotional play, incredibly sensitive, as you might expect, and I felt like that might be powerful in the space because, again... It would be, if you like, the total opposite to Every Brilliant Thing. And I do like that sense for those people that come to see, as it were, everything or go from one thing to another, that that when you come back next month, it's a different sensation. And this is a different thing because definitely we will be back in a world where the audience are intimate voyeurs to a very, very delicate, yes, somewhat painful encounter. It has had... Um, a remarkable number of productions abroad it's had something like 60 productions worldwide. And, of course, you do the inevitable googling and see marvellous images of different productions, all of which quite clearly are on end on stages. Mm-hmm. And so they've had to contrive a room for these things to take place in that we then all sit in a bunch and stare at. And so there has to be a sort of design... <laughs> Whereas, uh, as I say, obviously, we've got the marvellous Simon Dore designing this, and it it, it will be nothing other than designed, but we will be in the room together with these people. Um, uh, And I think there'll be a potency to that.
0: I'm about to do another one of these marvellous segues. Poison is about a couple driven apart by catastrophe. Miss Alliance is about a couple all driven together by a catastrophe. This stuff, you can use it. It's gold. It's for <laughs> every. Um, but we're back to Bernard Shaw. This is the third yeah. Bernard Shaw production here. I've always thought I didn't like Shaw. I've always thought he's long-winded and boring and theatrically stodgy. And I think it was a tenth Shaw production that I'd watched and enjoyed, where I suddenly thought, I have to admit to myself, <laughs> I actually really like... Bernard Shaw. How did you come to Shaw and this play in particular?
2: Uh, I make no claims to being a great Shadian, even the word makes me despair. It's only that my attention was drawn some years ago to the early plays and they seemed to me to be incredibly lively and funny and about the kind of clumsy, clownish, appalling embarrassment of of relationships and the beginnings of relationships and uh, they seem to me to be very funny and so and fresh and uh, kind of pertinent and in his kind of anarchic way there's no he was without question a feminist and these things these documents seemed very interesting Um, so I'm not sort of interested in proceeding through the Shaw canon it's just that Widower's Houses and the Philanderer and then this slightly later play Miss Lange just seemed like fantastic fun and the writing is brilliant if you've got you know great young actors who can really get their chops around the sentences and make them dance you know it's actually fizzing and theatrical and sort of got this kind of weird sensual life to it you know what I mean
0: and then we have the repertoire of the three plays that you're you're doing in in collaboration with Paints Planet Theatre, Cluid which are How to Be a Kid Sarah Macdonald-Hughes Black Mountain by Brad Birch and Out of Love by Eleanor Cook. Um, can I ask about them as as a trio of plays? I mean, do you you've got them playing in in repertory. Is the idea that they form a kind of coherent trilogy almost of plays, or is the idea actually to to look at this sort of range and contrasts of a, a set of of, of plays by a different generation of, of playwrights. They certainly
2: weren't conceived or written as consciously part uh, to make up a trilogy of any kind by the three writers. As it happens what y- I think what you've been um, sort of alluding to as we've taken this tour through the season is something that going back to programming uh, one of those things that was at first accidental but then as it developed became a choice which is that For better or worse, this six, seven, eight months' worth of work is kind of, even though it's quite varied, is kind of defined by the fact that they are plays of relationships. They're quite intimate plays about family relationships or intimate relationships of one kind or another. They may touch on the wider, wider world and are profoundly political in all sorts of ways, but they are not explicitly political plays or plays of ideas they take us on a bit of a tour of interior lives and and the sort of contours and nuances of of interpersonal relationships
0: it's interesting that you describe them as as having that kind of exploration of an interior life i suppose because exterior life at the moment is quite extraordinary in Britain and in fact in America and across the world it feels like we you know we we are we are living that chinese curse may you live in interesting times when you're thinking about programming a season how far do you think the orange tree must respond to you know brexit and trump and those sorts of things And how far do you think, actually, this is a chance to carve out a different kind of experience and and space?
2: It's really interesting. I think to some degree it's a chance to chart out a different space. I think that trying to make direct responses to political circumstances in the theatre is really difficult and rarely comes off. I have no idea what's going to happen in the world. And trying to respond to something now which you programmed to be happening in six months' time, you know, who knows where we're going to be, do you know what I mean? Something like the March on Russia, where, as I say, it's very much about the, you know, the fracturing of Labour heartland, socially and politically, 30 years ago, you know, was bound to be interesting, I think, regardless of what happens at sort of surface political level in the next couple of months. You know, I think the theatre is also best when it's a metaphor, even if it's a, even if it's a realistic play, yeah. it's still a metaphor, and so I I tend perhaps to shy away from things that are too on the nose. I go back to your one of your earlier questions. You know, one of the consequences of not having regular arts council funding is that it's very difficult to have a culture of commissioning plays here. You know, that's a loss if you like, because if you've got that kind of money available. Then you can sort of say to a writer, "Please write this." We're not really in a position to do that very much or very often. Also, I was I was aware that just in the first six months of this year, we'd done plays actually that were quite um, issue issue issuey, you know,
0: Winter Solstice, Winter Solstice,
2: um, which I loved, you know, and seen very much of now what's going on. You know, one of the things I'm interested in, there's a, there's a, you know, there's a play perhaps to do next year which is about working-class America, and that kind of thing interests me. You know, Trump doesn't interest me, really, but how we got to Trump does.
0: Sam Waters set up the Orange Tree above the pub over the road from here in 1971. Uh, he opened this theatre 20 years later, and he ret- retired in 2014 after 43 years. He's the proverbial... Hard actor follow, not least because of the loyal following among local theatregoers he built up over those decades. How have you found the audience, and how have they found you?
2: It fascinated me.
0: Other theatres that were putting on new plays,
2: more in central London, in smaller theatres, seemed to be struggling to get an audience for them. Whereas here, there was this audience that was up up for things, and so I thought that was great. I think what's really sometimes quite frustrating is that people who are not from Richmond hear the R word and leap to all kinds of conclusions about who lives here and who comes to the theatre here? In the sense that, um, and this is really what people struggle to grasp about Richmond, is that it is, in national terms, it does not have a demographically unusual number of older people. In terms of over 65s, it is absolutely the national average. It is slightly more than average for London. If it has a demographic bulge that makes it unusual, it is in early middle age, people in their 30s and 40s. Professional couples come here because it's a fantastic place to live, fantastic schools, fantastic theatres, parks. And so, actually, what we've found is that the kind of people that are interested in what we're doing here and want to support us and support us financially are not wealthy older people with conservative tastes no, no, they're the people that are really engaged with us and that are sort of really helping know, vital to what we're doing are the people that love an octoroon, um, that love Pomona, that love the brink, Brad Burch's, you know, and uh, you know, want to go on this sort of journey with us what was so interesting to me for instance about Ali McDowell's play Pomona when we did that it actually was it provoked an, a, react, a particular kind of reaction in a certain kind of audience which has been characterised ever since by a lot of the contemporary work that we do is uh, actually there's a there's a sort of older generation who live in and around Richmond who are up for coming to see all kinds of work at the Orange Tree who are not conservative, but they have a kind of liberal attitude to things, um, which is very interesting. And with Pomona, I think where... The sort of occasional Daily Mail reaction to filth, if you know what, I wasn't interested in, Mm. but I was interested in the sort of older liberal reaction of horror to the play, because they perceived the play to be illiberal, in the sense that... Here was a young man seeming to promulgate the idea that it was impossible to be good in the modern world. Mm. And that idea horrified them, and that a play was putting forward that idea. Because plays, in their mind, exist to thrash things out and get issues into the open Mm. in order to make the world a better place. Now, I'm not always very interested in those kinds of plays, but that was interesting, I think. And then other reactions to that, you know, when people said, "Oh, this is great! This reminds us of the '60s." <laughs> Again, something that I don't know Ali might be horrified by, but because <laughs> with them basically going, "Oh, this is like 50 years ago," uh, <laughs> you know, okay. I th- I thought that was great, you know. And so that's who that's uh, who, who we, you know, who's here, and that's when it's great. Paul Miller, thank you very much. Dan, thank you very much indeed.
0: So, there we are. It's the end of the episode as we know it, and I feel fine. Thanks to Kate Morby and Paul Miller for being so generous with their time and thoughts. Sources for all the clips, plays mentioned, and other information about my guests are on my website. Music is by Nick Powell and Nick McCarthy. Graphics are by Liam Jarvis. We're on Twitter at at StageDirectPod. Meanwhile, I'm on Twitter at the Socialistically Unambiguous at Dan Please go to iTunes and give us a five-star review, and you'll be entered for a prize draw. The lucky winner receiving my undying affection. Do it now. See you next time. Cheers. Um, and you can talk very, very freshly That's that but... Oh, is that not? No. I, know. I, know. <laughs> I never know how to turn. It's <laughs> all right. That's fine. Have a phone call.
2: i just. No, no, no. It... It is the general line that um,
1: and,
0: and then... Downtown.